Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. How are some people so good at responding and other people, why do other people falter? And a lot of us believe that being prepared in advance is really the key knowing that you might have a real-time opportunity that comes up or being prepared to, to recognize and prevent a problem before it comes up. So that's why tonight's, tonight's panel is so important and it's the thing that's so often overlooked. So tonight we're going to try to help everybody get up to speed for how to be ready um, and poised to stop something before it happens um, or to jump on it when it happens and take a PR digital issue and avoid it becoming a crisis or a disaster. Um, so let me start out by asking each person in the audience or in the panel to introduce themselves really quick, like a quick introduction and a little bit about um, what's special to you about the prevention of PR problems. We'll start with Eric. How about that? Okay. Uh, good. Uh, good evening, everyone. The one thing I was going to say about crisis preparedness, I think the most important thing is. Eat a healthy breakfast. <laughs> it's important that you have all the four food groups represented. Um, social media uh, and a crisis. I um, got my start in public relations at uh, Rogers and Cowan. I was the director of promotions there. I launched a uh, internet startup uh, called iPress Room, which some of you may have heard of. I sold that three years back, and now I'm on to my second startup which is a social media ethics and compliance training. And that came out of um, a few years of consulting with DOD and US Department of State and other big organizations that are trying to scale social media engagement internally, but running up against a brick wall with uh, legal and HR when they try to get everyone else in the organization liking and retweeting their shares from the branded account. Siobhan. Um, I'm Siobhan O'Neill. I'm a VP at Edelman Digital. I've been working for Edelman Digital for about almost six years. It'll be six years in June, which is forever in agency years. Um, I started my career at Disney, Disney Channel Interactive, many years ago, um, and went on to interactive marketing and a couple of startups, one of which you may have heard of, um, one called Rever.com, which was a really early YouTube competitor. Um, I started at Edelman. Um, they hired me because I had no PR experience whatsoever. They said, great, you're hired. I said, really? Okay. I had no idea what I was getting into, but I've been there for almost six happy years. Um, I do uh, a lot of CPG and made some of our major food clients. I've been working with them for about five years. Um, and I've been part of our U.S. crisis and risk practice for about three and a half of those years. Um, I don't know how a worrywart like me gets into crisis management, but it happened. Um, a couple of our, of our clients had some major crises about three and a half years ago, and word got around that we managed it really well because they were crises that none of you probably heard about, which means I did my job correctly. Um, but uh, part of, but uh, I've been part of the practice for about three and a half years now, and it's one of my favorite parts of my job now. So. And my name is Chris Bagus. I'm a head of digital for Golan Harrison Western Region. Uh, I've been in PR, uh, actually came from digital marketing uh, about four years ago when I went to AT&T and headed up social media. 
globally for the company inside the PR team. So it was a new experience for me with no PR experience as well. Uh, and it was definitely a crash course in crisis management at AT&T for a couple of years there. And, uh, you know, we lived it basically every single day. I didn't realize how much of my job was going to be that piece of it. Uh, it cer- certainly is part of that today. I represent several different clients for Nintendo, Toyota, several food brands. And um, so it's definitely an element of what I do, but definitely um, very strong within the social and digital space of it, setting up command centers, listening tools, things like that. So but I think we'll have a lot to talk about. Yeah. And I'm Laura Knapp. I'm the owner and founder of Social Spotlight Media. We're a PR and digital marketing agency here in Los Angeles. Um, We focus on fashion, food, health, and wellness brands. Um, Within the consumer lifestyle industry, you may not expect a lot of uh, crisis, but we do experience kind of weekly, daily mini crisis, which kind of all have, you know, have something to do with customer service and customer relations. Um, So it's a lot of, you know, product... um, you know, products, buttons falling off, or product doesn't arrive on time, or product availability. So it's a day-to-day crisis management, mini crisis management. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna name a couple, just a couple topics, um, just so that you have a sense of where we're going. But then, um, what I like to do is to try to create a dialogue as much as possible with an audience and a panel. So I'm gonna encourage you, even when we don't throw it out to you, to raise your hand and try to jump in with the we had a problem like this, how could we have avoided it, or you know, uh, whatever you can do to help us make this real to those of you who are out here who want to learn how to, um, to prevent and manage crises before they get out of control. I want to make sure that I'm just going to name a couple topics. I want to make sure that we cover the idea of training and education because that's sort of a new sort of brainchild, like it's a really great idea. Um, if, for those of you who've ever worked for any entity that receives public funds, Everybody has to do things like sexual harassment training, diversity training. You get certificates. Eric's idea was that maybe maybe people who work in companies should also get that sort of basic social media compliance um, type training. And it's a great idea. So we want to make sure we get into that. I want to talk about um, listening and monitoring. When should you start doing that? Should you wait till there are problems, or should you do it in advance? Audience building. Do you, do you need an audience before you need an audience? Obviously, I think, yes, I brought an audience of my own um, just to make sure I had my people here. Exactly. Um, customer service, safety, security, and privacy, um, and what do you do when, when you have brands that sort of do their own thing, like celebrities and musicians and things like that. So, um, so I'm just tossing out some of those to get you people thinking about that. But let's, I want to start out by maybe, Eric, you can maybe talk a little bit about, um, and the rest of you can jump in also, because I think, so, I, I know Siobhan and some of you have done other sort of compliance training, but let's talk a little bit about this new idea of creating modules, learning modules that get everybody up to speed and ready not to violate any rules or regulations. So as PR, we've always been the offense side of communications, and the defense side has always been you know, the legal department or HR. So if you look at social media communications, um, you know, we were a lot of us really fluent in the use of social media for promotions and communications, but we might not be so fluent in how social media could trip us up legally. And increasingly, there are uh, rules and regs from government agencies uh, that impact what you can and can't legally do, what your employees can and can't legally do. And you hear about the big cases because they make the national press. 
So you hear about what was the interactive, the gal from the interactive, what was her name, Just, Justine Sacco. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you, we hear about those cases because they're mainstream and they, they come to um, popular attention, but I'm monitoring all these keywords around social media compliance, and I'm seeing in small markets all sorts of terrible things happen, happening on a weekly basis that you never hear about. So the one um, last week was, I don't know if anyone heard of this, there was an employee at a PR firm who was responsible for posting to uh, clients' social media accounts. And she had built in um, Google Docs a spreadsheet of all the usernames and passwords for the different accounts that she was managing. And she'd shared that spreadsheet with her employer. And she was incapacitated due to a car accident. And uh, during the, her absence, the employer accessed the spreadsheet and posted to the account. But there was never any contract between the employer and the employee that that was cool. And so when she came back to work, she filed an intrusion of privacy claim. And she's going to win. She's going to win that case. And it's going to be really expensive, and it's a little boutique agency. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they go bankrupt and change their name if if it doesn't work out for them. Um, Another one that I saw last week, um, did anyone see that, that news? So So they're not big enough cases that they're going to wind up, you know, on HuffPo or any of these big sites, but I mean, they're getting they're getting covered in regional press, and I'm I'm seeing them on on my model. Let me let me just toss out sort of to me the generic form of that. That's a little bit different. A generic problem that comes up is if you if you have people uh, posting to whatever you know for your for your agency or for a client. Mm-hmm. And they have a Twitter account or an Instagram account or whatever, and it's specifically for that for that purpose, for that business purpose. Then, when they leave, who owns that following? Is it the individual or is it the company that paid for that? And those are the kinds of things that are very complicated, and that you know that are ending up in the courts right now. But people don't. People wander in. Companies wander into those problems without even thinking about them. And, and, and just to wrap that my sort of intro up. So most organizations to date have been handling this idea of social media compliance through a policy, right? That's really popular. Organizations will have some sort of policy, and when you start your job, you sign for a bunch of papers, and they hand them off to you, and you take them, and you put them in the bottom drawer, and you go to work. So the policy is really great if the employer needs to fire you because you did something wrong, but it's not going to impact your behavior. So if what you really want to do is prevent a crisis, you need to make sure people are proficient in policy. And you mentioned sexual harassment training. I believe social media compliance training will be the sexual harassment training of the future. You've done some work on this front. Do you want to jump in on the what do you do to prepare people or to teach them how to be responsible early on? Sure. I mean... I- at Edelman, I, that governance and, and compliance is an issue for a lot of our clients, less so now than I think it was four or five years ago. I think most, at least, I, I don't work with big, with, we're not a boutique agency, we work with a lot of big clients, so a lot of them have taken that upon themselves, and um, they do not just policies, but training modules and that sort of thing, and have developed social media training and policy and governance, and everybody has to go through it at various levels of the organization. At Edelman, I I think the same is true of Golan. We all have to put our money where our mouth is, and we have our own trainings that we have to go through. For us, it's called the belt system. It's the social media belt system, so you get an orange belt or a green belt when you get through various parts of the program. 
Um, they do that to try to motivate us. But it, what's really mostly motivating, <laughs> what's, what's really motivating about it is if you don't go through it, you are, you know, you're as twisting in the wind. If you don't go through it, you don't necessarily know um, what's appropriate and what's not. I mean, we try to hire people with really good judgment. Um, and that's a, a huge part of knowing what to and what not to do in social media. Um, so good judgment is a huge part of it. Um, also, you know, just being smart about client policies and procedures. Um, a lot of our clients have gotten hip and savvy to it, so I, you know, it's become less of an issue over time. Um, but certainly we still have to educate every once in a while. Just today, um, one of my functions is to review policies and guidelines because I do it a lot. I used to write them a lot in the beginning. Um, I've written a lot of companies' internal social media policies. I'm not sure how I became qualified to do that, but they, they tend to get through legal, which is probably why. Um, but I just got a set today that a company, HR and legal, had it obviously put their scrawl all over um, and had to look at it for you know actual language. Are people going to actually understand this? See, if people just see a bunch of words on a page, it's just... Nobody's going to read it and nobody's going to care. Um, but I went through it today and sent back my comments and my notes. And then they called me and said, hey, our, our, our human resources and legal would like to talk to you because they agree with your changes and they want to know how to, they want to, know how to take this a step further. So clearly it had an impact. But I do that a lot for clients. And sometimes they just want a little bit of help and counsel. And then sometimes it goes into, can you help us develop training? Because we have no idea where to start. And so we, we can help them develop that training and develop that, you know, sort of develop that curriculum for clients. So to me, prevention is sometimes sort of the, the it's like the, um, the sleeper topic. You know, it's the thing that looks like it's kind of the boring topic. But in fact, when you're not on top of it, you can run into a lot of problems. How many of you are PR professionals in the audience today? How many of you, I'd like to hear what kind of, um, I'll give you an example of how you're saying that it's getting easier. In some, in, some, in some respects, it's getting easier. I remember half a dozen years ago, Mrs. Fields Cookies got into a lot of trouble because they had a birthday club. Give us your email address and your birthday, and we will send you a coupon for a free cookie. And they forgot to say check here if you're, you know, over 13. And so what happened was they got hit with, it was almost $100,000 in fines plus legal bills. And that to me, that's a lot of cookies, right, even for a company, a big cookie company. But, um, but no one would make that mistake now. But for those of you who are PR professionals, there's a part of you that must be thinking, okay, you know what, is this really my problem or is this the client's problem? Should they have... Should they have that? Um, should that, that be their thing? Should they be teaching their employees what to say or what not to say? To me, this is the issue all the time. It's the the question of should Ellen DeGeneres have been told if you're um, if you're doing a Samsung promotion at the Oscars, then make sure you put away your iPhone. In the back, right? Isn't that part of the issue? Somebody who whose job was it to tell her put away your iPhone? I think maybe it was the PR people. Who who were in charge of that event? I don't know, but um, you know, what do you guys think? Your PR people—is it your responsibility, or is it somebody else's to deal with the client's social media responsibilities? Well, I think any any situation, you know, any any, any team that starts delineating between client and agencies is a pretty bad team. No matter what you're doing, whether you're doing marketing, whether you're doing PR, whether you're doing crisis, no matter what it is, you're really there working together as a full team. So. Um, you know, that feels more like a lot of kind of finger pointing after the fact of situations. And I've been in situations where, even in Super Bowl, um, with Will I Am, one situation where, 
you know, we were working with them, with him and his team on, you know, tweeting and, and tweeting at an event, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, no one realized he was going to tweet from the middle of the field, which didn't have really a um, connectivity um, situation there. So, you know, even though you have all this goodwill and, and participation and making sure everyone's connected, it has the right devices, all the other things, you hit this one little nuance that no one really kind of expects of like a tweeting while on stage where none of the uh, connectivity is really pointing to. Those are really difficult kind of challenges that kind of crop up. And so, you know, preparation is a lot of what we're really talking about. I mean, policies is one form of preparation. The problem with a lot of policies is that they happen when you join a company or when you get like an annual refresh. You know, they're kind of forgotten about when you're kind of going through the day-to-day -day piece. And no one really kind of goes, oh my gosh, I can't believe we hit that situation because I forgot to follow the company policy I signed six months ago when I joined the organization. So. You know, having a really robust uh, training program, having a robust preparation program is a lot of, I think, what we're talking about tonight. Any of you out there have any thoughts? Are you involved in training for this, or is it just one of those things that, that everybody walks right past? I love these active crowds. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. We can talk amongst ourselves. Seriously. <laughs> but even, even smaller than, um, like, a training program or making sure everyone on the team is aware having what we put together for all of our clients is a customer response protocol so the moment we know that a question in this category is asked this is our bucketed response that's tweaked per question but the clients already approved it so we can go out without any kind of customer or client approvals because they've already approved it so that's great Laura just said what Siobhan and I were talking about earlier which is great I think always and I think most of us think that it doesn't matter whether you're talking about crises or opportunities, the more you prepare, the better. My favorite example, by the way, is, um, this is not a crisis, but it was the same setup for anything. The Super Bowl a year ago, um, does, does anybody remember who won the social media war? Oreos, <laughs> exactly, my students. Um, yeah, and how did they win? They won because they took advantage of the real-time happening. There was the, the power went out, and they somehow came up with the idea to tweet out, you could still dunk in the dark. Somehow they came up with that idea. They came up with a plan for how to do it. Somehow they got approval. And then somehow they got it up and going before the, the power outage happened. Think about your clients. How many, or yourself, how many of you could have come up with a creative idea figured out how to get legal and, you know, sort of company approval, and then actually implemented before the real-time opportunity, <coughs> uh, before it, it expired. So, Karen, that's a great example. Um, and it's, it's an interesting example. I think we've all lived, like, the, certainly real-time marketing is a big piece of a lot of, lot of what's happening. Um, there were 10 companies that did that, by the way. <laughs> there were 35 people in that room, yeah, some of them including HR, legal, yeah. regulatory, everybody else. So. Well, and I think a lot of it is the whole idea of prep. Were they prepping to go ahead and prepare to go ahead and do a Dunk in the Dark tweet or Audi kind of ripping on Mercedes-Benz with why are your lights out inside your stadium, which actually was before the Oreo one, or Tide that also did a <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Too. And so, you know, a lot of that is just really making sure that you have a really tight communication stream of, you know, who's, a who's, who's on call that night? Who's the client on call? Who's the creative team on call? Who's the social media team on call? Who's the legal team on call? That kind of piece. And so we see a lot of this whole idea of war rooms and pieces like that. Now, Oreo was advertising. Tide was advertising. Audi was advertising. It's no mistake that these companies were all kind of participating already inside the 
activity around that particular um, activation. So, but they had the right team in place. Not everybody did. There were several other advertisers who didn't participate with it because they might not have had that chain of command within um, their client piece. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the important part, I think, for an Oreo or for or for any of our smaller clients is having the right process in place and a process that can, a process and guidelines that can be evenly applied whether you are in a standard communication situations or whether you're in an issue uh, an issue is something that you need to respond to or a true crisis your fire your facebook page is being firebombed by an activist like mm -hmm. so having having a process and also having mm -hmm. a protocol and a, and a decision tree and people that are actively involved in that process so you know who to pick up the phone and call when something breaks and having that process be evenly applicable across the organization um, and across communications I think is critical. Um, the first crisis that I ever worked on with a client was a food client, it was a big media crisis and I had never been in a crisis before but we had a plan and I knew who to call um, and realized that the processes that we had built in that situation were pretty applicable. We had to get supply chain and we had to get HR and we had to, and I think we had to get legal involved a little more than we normally would have, but we knew who to we knew who to pick up the phone and call and we evenly applied, you know, we had community guidelines, our community managers had guidelines, we were working directly with their customer service reps to make sure that our response was the same no matter where you went for information. So if you went to their website or you came to their Facebook page, or you dialed them up on their 1-800 number, that the response that they got was absolutely the same, and made sure that that was consistent across the organization, it mitigated it and kind of turned it to the, into the crisis that wasn't. Um, they had had activist issues on their Facebook pages before. They had been firebombed about a year before by, I believe, Greenpeace. Um, and it was really scary for them. So they were really, really scared. And I said, look, as long as we're consistent, and as long as we apply this evenly, we're going to be fine. And we were. I mean, that's, you know, so I'm just, I'm, I'm picking up some takeaway messages. One, for all of your clients and for yourself, wherever you're working, make sure that you have a process so that you can act or, and react when you need to. Secondly, um, you know, make sure that you're absolutely prepared. And third, make sure that you have a consistent message. Those are the three that I'm picking up. Tell me. I think we've left out. I think the biggest liability and the biggest risk hasn't been said. Um, you know, in our industry, the way that it works is, you know, young kids come out of school and go to work on agency business. And the economics of the agency business is you hire when times are good and you cut back when times are lame. And the necessity to deliver results to clients is often to throw junior staffers at new accounts. And so you've got this environment now where you've got people coming into the workforce who were raised in a world where it's okay to share things that happen throughout your day. They actually have an impulse to share things that happen throughout the day. It's part of the culture. And now you've got all these rules and regs that a lot of people aren't aware of. You know, you can be fined $11,000 per tweet for tweeting on behalf of a client without disclosing your material relationship. You can be fined $16,000 for scraping email addresses off the internet and sending out a campaign to everyone. You can be fined $8,000 for taking a photo that's not yours and using it on your blog. And so these are innocent things 
that people don't have training in. I don't think it's like, oh, they should know better. Well, why? They were raised in an environment where this was the norm, and now they're coming into the workplace. And so I think, I think sort of the ticking time bomb under it all is in the, in the agency business and in PR is the fact that we've got so many you know, junior staffers that are on new business. And I mean, just, just to really you know, give you some bigger numbers, um, there's an organization that was recently uh, nabbed by the FTC for, for paying for fake reviews on a social network. Quarter million dollars. Quarter million dollars. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of money. I mean, for a, lo- for a small agency, it, it puts you out of business. For a big agency, you know, it's, you, it's, it's on the annual report. You make it sound like big agencies throw our junior staff to the wolves. We can, we can have this conversation. I'm a former big agency person, and I understand you have a responsibility to protect big agency, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's the, it's the economics of the business. It's the way that it works. This is the most exciting well, one. Yeah, no, no, no. There's actually, no, I, like, I like where you're going, Eric. You're right. There is a cultural behavior, and it's not just young people, too. It's everyone who's kind of using social media in a personal way. And so whenever you have someone who hasn't really used social media in a business capacity, this whole idea of now I have to work underneath the idea of whatever I post out there is around commercial usage. And so that's a very different issue than I'm going to go ahead and share whatever's going on because now I'm applying a commercial purpose to whatever I'm bringing out there, whether that's repurposing something that someone else posted on Pinterest, whether that is you know taking an image off of Google Images that seems fair and something that you might just do within your personal life. You know, now that you're doing it for, for a company, it raises all these other kind of issues like the $8,000 kind of I use the photographer's photo and those kind of situations that have cropped up. So it is an education. You're right, it's usually one that doesn't always happen because a lot of times those things are not sitting inside social media policies. A lot of social media policies don't necessarily address the whole idea of what's a commercial purpose, what's a personal purpose of what happens with the new content piece that, hap- that occurs there. So I, I do agree with what you're talking about because this does happen and, and are these situations that do crop up a lot of times when we talk about what happens inside a content plan when you're dealing with someone who might not have really ran up against this whole commercial purpose issue that usually legal's bringing and some and people have worked either inside a company or with, lar- with companies that have had to deal with the situation at large ass. Because most of the policy and training to date is around literacy, digital literacy, not compliance. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff around the whole idea of, you know, you know, almost like, you know, whatever you say or share, you know, think about what would you do if your mom or dad saw it on a billboard. It's kind of like a lot of that stuff that still sits out there. I mean, for us, compliance is part of literacy. They are not two separate things. Um, And I manage a lot of junior staff. I have six junior staffers, and I also have a hand in the careers of many more. So that's a huge part of our training is compliance because that's a big, huge issue um, at Edelman. And the person who recruited me to Edelman is our expert on on compliance and guidance and sends us a weekly email on what's happening at the FTC and all of the things that we should know. So I don't think that that, that that applies across big agencies. And I can tell you that when we work with clients and we have new community managers and new PR professionals on business, we don't put them in front of clients and we don't put them on client work without them going through that and ultimately the buck stops here 
And the book the stops with all of us on the client team, client as well, and it's the responsibility of all of us to make sure that, that, it, that it happens correctly and it happens right. So while I agree that compliance is a, is a challenge, I don't necessarily think that we're out of the loop. Um, I, that's, that hasn't been my experience. Um, and it's really, really important to us to make sure that we've that we've appropriately uh, that we've appropriately uh, uh, prepared our employees because ultimately, if we don't, that means we failed them. So the issue that you could jump in. There's so um, I was at this uh, global ethics summit in New York last week, and uh, you know one of the keynote was um, the president of Boeing. And, what, and it's sort of, they're all talking about compliance and ethics. It's really interesting. And what he said was, you know, his objective with ethics and compliance training is to get people to stop and think, right? And so I would say, you know, social media ethics training is about getting people to engage in moral reflection on issues of uncertainty. You know, before you tweet it out, do you think about the impact? And I think when you're when you're using social media on behalf of your client, I, even at a small agency, we train our team to think before they do that. So I think that that's a huge part of the education portion. So I think I also think that the issue that Eric raised <coughs> is there. You know, in the world of the glass is also half full. Um, so we're now in a sharing culture. We're in a culture where people can't sit for two minutes without um, without communicating. And so that can cause a problem, and you have to teach people how to, you know, what, what's the phrase now, think before you tweet, or think before you post, or think before, you've heard that, right? Sure. Um, but at the same time, doesn't that give us an opportunity to listen and monitor the conversations, not only of our staff, but of our brands or our clients? Absolutely. Isn't there so much information out there that we can now hear the rumblings or see the... You know, see the tide moving before the tsunami hits. What do you think? Yeah, check to see what other people are tweeting about, whether it's a hashtag or a keyword, before you decide to tweet on behalf yeah. of your client. Google before you tweet yeah. is the new <laughs> think before you speak. Yeah, exactly. Well, the audience also responds very fast. So if you do have something that kind of, yeah. let's say, I don't want to say is inappropriate, but maybe it goes into a direction where um, maybe someone didn't fully think out what they mm -hmm. tweeted out there the audience responds pretty immediately. And so you see that response if you are listening. If all you're doing is just pushing forward and saying, here's, here's why I want to broadcast, 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 and you're not looking at how the audience is responding, you're going to miss a lot of that stuff. So there's a lot of canary in the coal mine, uh, whether that's just a media within, the re within a comment or a reply or whatever it might be, or something more dynamic like a you know, command center that actually really looks at the volume of conversation and what's happening within what you kind of thrown out there. See, I think that we're in, a, we're in an era now where pretty much anything that you care about, you can go find people talking about it, even the smallest things. And so you know, it, maybe it's not a representative sample, as we academics like to talk about, but the reality is that sometimes you can get a heads up on things. And then you can start thinking, wait, you know what? We thought we were doing so well, but there's this little rumbling. Maybe, we, maybe that's anomalous, or maybe we should prepare based on that. Um, so you know what, Chris, you mentioned your audience, but do you have an audience? If it's just random people out there, maybe what Facebook and you're tweeting, what do you Well, yeah, so I mean, there's, there's usually audience? two audiences. There's the audience of the audience that you've built that's really people who are fans or have some connection already to your brand or your social presence, if you will. And then you have the audience that is 
either heard about you or is responding to the, cri- or to the crisis or someone going and actively an, an attacking activist. you. Attacking an, an activist. Activists. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there's several different audiences that kind of come into play within that. Um, you know, what's interesting is even your fan and your kind of hardcore fan base, I mean, we talked about it when we were talking about some of the issues you want to talk about. You know, advocacy is an interesting space. I mean, every brand, no matter whether you're Nike, Apple, or even AT&T, or some other brand that doesn't necessarily always feel like it has an advocacy base, they do, you do. And so what's great within that is how do you nurture that? How do you really kind of make that advocacy really point in play to what you're doing within the social media space? I used to lead digital strategy for Ford Motor Company um, in the early social media days for the brand and um, from the agency side. And uh, what was interesting about that is we were building a very strong advocate base within the social community, so people who were very active in, so, in social media. Um, what we saw happen, we didn't necessarily really do that to go ahead and say, hey, we need to, we're going to build this audience of when we need to have a crisis happen, they're going to come and defend us. That was more of a byproduct of really building strong relationships with people. And then once there is some kind of crisis or criticism, it's not always a crisis, maybe it's some negativity, you know, those people will go ahead and defend the brand and say, you know, I love a lot of the stuff that's going on here, or that's the kind of minor issue, here's kind of a a refute of that, or here's a story that kind of corrects the story that you're talking about. You see a lot of that kind of participation, and if you're really engaged with your advocates and really responding and engaging with them, not just go, oh great, I have an advocate, that's awesome, and just let them keep talking with no participation, uh, they're not going to really kind of jump up and kind of defend you and participate with you in an active way. And so that's what's really important within the advocacy piece, too, with the audience. So how, oh, go ahead. how do you build that audience? Do you create a site? Do you have an app? Do you have people? What, how do you get that? How do you build those people up? A YouTube channel? What's, what's out there? <laughs> Sometimes it just happens within the brand. There brands, I used to work with Tommy Hilfiger, and it was the same way we had built-in loyalists who were already fans of our community. And because of our activity of being you know, frequently posting, posting things we know they like, from a social perspective, now we can check analytics and see what people are, are liking and responding to and post more of those things. So really, it is, goes back to listening and monitoring, um, but from not just the top level, but from the bottom level of actually looking at the analytics. Yeah. Reaching out to advocates, I mean, it, we, use a lot, we use a lot of the same touch points that most marketers do. It's a matter of where people are most comfortable engaging, I think. So we want to make sure that whatever, whatever message, at least in a crisis or issue situation that we have, we want to make sure that the message is out there wherever they happen to be or wherever they happen to look. So that most, of our, most of our clients have a pretty robust ECRM program, so they get our emails. Some of them have joined our Facebook page or some of them have joined us on Twitter. Others, um, others are part of a direct mail program um, that we work on. It's just kind of a matter of um, activating all of those channels around whatever it is we're trying to say. And then there's some who are kind of our super fans, our super users, and a lot of those people we email directly. Um, a lot of those folks we talk to, uh, you know, they'll talk directly to us. Some of them have joined sort of a little advocate communities, like, almost like a focus group that we that we run. So it kind of runs the gamut. It's w- really about what what they're co- where they're where they're comfortable being. The other important thing if you want to engage advocates is don't suck. <laughs> and that's a good point. I mean, yeah. Eric, you're right. I mean, you could build, you know, obviously creating social media properties and, 
and communities and all that is one way to go ahead and do it. But you know, advocacies existed long before Facebook and all these other kind of pieces. I mean, and, there, and there's brands like Apple, which traditionally haven't really had social media presence in, in a lot of cases, um, and they have a very strong advocate community because they don't suck, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe they're sucking yeah. a little bit now, but <laughs> <laughs> but that's always been the case. You know, when you have a really strong kind of product where people are kind of willing, and, and advocacy is really just a willingness to recommend. It's for others to purchase, and so that's happened in a lot of cases with a lot of brands. What do you do? Well, actually, any you guys are the quietest. Yes. Do you ever attend your advocacy groups for any crisis communications? It's a delicate spot. I mean, it depends on how you're running that advocacy relationship. So if you're doing something that's a bit more, what I would say, more like a focus group, or you really have kind of this core kind of group that, that you work with very regularly. From like a PR perspective. Absolutely, from a PR perspective, yes, absolutely. If it's just from marketing research stuff and things like that, probably not. But um, I have seen that fail yeah. horribly. When you, when you try to activate it, a marketing advocacy community around a crisis situation. It work, yeah, I, I would think it works better from a PR perspective where you yeah. can handle it kind of quietly mm-hmm. through kind of the background behind the screen versus... Yeah, and, and you're not going to do really in a bigger line. kind of audience. Yeah, I mean, yeah. usually there are some core voices that you have a very tight one-to-one relationship with that you could definitely... I would, I would say not necessarily say, hey, here's our messaging, here's what we want mm-hmm. you to run with. It's more like... Hey, just so you know, here's kind of how we're responding to this, just so you're aware of this. And maybe there's someone who is, you know, running a blog that kind of talks about your brand. Maybe they're running a Facebook page that's kind of involved in the product. Maybe they're active on your Facebook page and you've kind of developed a real strong relationship with them. But I would never go to kind of that person or, or those sources for the first time when you're kind of dealing with that. Yeah. So I'm going to show my age here because maybe yeah, things have changed a little. Um, but I remember the case study of Kryptonite Locks which was like the first oh, yeah. big deal. Okay. And I remember hearing a briefing with the communications wait, wait, explain director. The, explain the back. Locks is a bike lock, and somebody took the cap of a big pen and made a 10-second YouTube video of picking the lock and put it on YouTube. I thought you were going way better. <laughs> and then and the, yeah, the Kryptonite saw it, and they saw there was like only nine or, nine or ten views on it. And they were like, you know, we don't really know which SKU this is. We don't know which country it's distributed. We'll take the weekend for damage control, and then we'll do the recall announcement on Monday. And over the weekend, a USA Today reporter found it on YouTube with only nine views, which made it more enticing, ran a big scoop and, you know, obliterated their brand value in 48 hours. And I heard this briefing with the communications director afterwards. And her takeaways in this briefing were, here's what I would do differently. Um, I can't go head-to-head with the blogging bike community. It's too many people. Not enough hours in a day. So what I'm, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to build one-on-one relationships with the top 12. And that way, if something like this happens in the future, I'll call them up. They'll know me. And I'll, I'll tell them what's going on. Would that not work anymore? Have things changed? It depends on where it's coming from. I mean, you know... But from what I recall from that, you know, that video didn't come from one of those top 20 blogs. No. It came from a consumer, right? Um, you know, and so 
then the conversation is, is you know, so if something like that comes in, you can actually contact that person um, directly. Now, it's always a very cautious, kind of careful kind of piece of what you're doing because you're kind of opening up a, a bigger kind of dialogue there. Um, you can also handle response after it happens. So usually we don't catch nine video views. So honestly, it doesn't usually show up in a command center. It doesn't really show up in any kind of piece there. Um, where it shows up is, you know, for however the USA reporter kind of led up to that, hopefully there is a little bit more of a canary in the coal mine before it gets to USA Today. <laughs> there usually is. <laughs> and, um, yeah, sometimes, not always. And, you know, but then what you're dealing with is you're dealing more with response. Where am I going to actively respond to this? The great thing with YouTube, and this doesn't happen enough, a lot of times brands will go ahead and respond on Facebook to something happening on YouTube, which is kind of ridiculous. I mean, that's where the conversation's happening or where the content's happening. You can, with YouTube, also go ahead and do a response video now. Over the last couple of years, you're able to do that. Not sure it was available during that situation, but now you can. And so having actually a response video tied into that, you as a brand could kind of you know, handle what, you're going, what your response is. So always kind of looking at following up within the platform where the crisis is also happening is important. Whether you actually connect it or catch it because of those relationships with the bloggers, I don't know. I mean, you could certainly handle, hey, we've handled the response and here's what our response is in case you guys are writing about that. That's a very different kind of thing. So you're kind of dissipating and kind of lessening the impact of the issue that's kind of cropped up. It kind of reminds me of the Target, the recent Target um, Photoshop scandal. Oh, yeah, yeah so that's just with the like bathing suit thing? <laughs> Someone in the Photoshop. Yeah, why are you telling us what's the worst Photoshop? Like, worst Photoshop ever. Worst Photoshop, yeah. Laura. <laughs> uh, Photoshopped the bikini area of, a, of the model, a Target bathing suit model. Um, and so it. it but I think the same thing. It got picked up by a couple small bloggers who then, from you know, there it, and from there I started getting all my newsletters. Like the headline was, "Look what Target's doing! They're photoshopping the inner thighs of these women a bit, these women a bit too far." So I think I think it kind of acts the same way. I've seen conversations turn like that turn around within 24 hours just by a company raising its hand and saying, "You know what? We're listening." that really sucked and we admit it and here's what we're gonna do to fix it. Um, I can't name the brand, but um, a couple of years ago, um, a brand that makes products for babies, I'll leave it at that, um, made an ad that kind of kind of portrayed dad, it, it kind of portrayed dads kind of bumbling a little bit um, and a couple of dad bloggers kind of bristled at that. Um, okay, they really bristled at that and they were really upset about it and it just so happened to coincide with a big blogger conference at the time. Um, and so the PR team swung into action and said, hey, this is a problem. We knew this was going to be a problem because they saw the ad and said, this sucks. Um, and nobody listened to them. So they said, uh, we need to be prepared for, what the, for the blowback to this because there is going to be blowback. Guess what? They were right. And so they said to the client, they said, you know, we just have to say, you know what? We hear you. We're ready. We, we want to sit down and we want to talk to you and we want to listen. And they did, and they talked to some of those bloggers direct, some of those dad bloggers directly, and said, "You know what? That sucked. Here's what we're going to do to fix it." They managed to turn around that conversation in 24 hours, and there was a follow-up piece that was posted uh, by the Washington Post after 24 hours, you know, detailing what what had happened and what Huggies was doing. Somebody had launched a change.org petition. He took it down. So he said, "No, no, no. This isn't what I what I want to do. I, you know, I." I the, the, this this company listened to me, and here's what they're going to do to fix it, and so turned all of these detractors and activists into advocates within that 24-hour period. So sometimes simply raising your head and saying, 
oops, we screwed up is huge for people and then you then you're accountable to your audience to make those changes. And by the way, that is not new to social media, just to no. completely no, not at date all. myself not beyond at all. Eric stating himself. You know, let's go back to sort of, you know, PR 101 or even maybe PR1 is, um, you know, if you think about the Tylenol scandal of, when was that, the 1970s or something? The, when was it? 83. 80, the 1983. I never took a PR class. Um, I, I just know stuff. Um, you go back to 1983. What was so remarkable about that? What was remarkable about that is that somebody put something in Tylenol and the president of Tylenol said, it's our responsibility and people are like, oh, I feel safe about that. When I worked at the White House, we had a huge, horrible problem with um, Waco, Texas. Remember that big scandal? And the problem was that the President of the United States, that would be our beloved Bill Clinton, said, I had nothing to do with this. And then the country went crazy until Janet Reno said, even though I didn't know about this, it's my responsibility because I'm the Attorney General. So it's, you know, these, are, these are things that work. And they, to me, they remind me of two things. One is that. In America, and I don't think it is true globally, but in America, we want somebody to own up and take responsibility, even if they were not directly responsible. It's a cultural part of our country. And the other part is, do you want your crisis to last one news cycle or like 10 news cycles? If you take responsibility and act on it, aren't you better off because then it's like, okay, look what happened and look how they responded and now we're done with this. But, but Karen, it's not always that easy, as we all know. Well, I think obviously. Living that. I, obviously not. And, well, and, and, hire you. And, and what's, well, exactly. <laughs> and I think the challenge, and, and honestly, you know, what's, what's great within, you know, what we're talking about, certainly in the digital space is everything in the digital space is two-way communication now, or, or, you know, or, or one way at you when you're doing nothing. <laughs> and so... But what, what the challenge is, is, and this is where, you know, maybe some of the listening tools and some of the volume of what's happening and what is that response. I mean, not, it's always a difficult thing for, one, the PR team and the legal team to figure out, are we okay with going forward and kind of omitting a responsibility or taking, a, a, taking an action? Because the, 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 tradition, the PR side of it is, oh, we got hit on this one news cycle. It fading, it's just fading away, so let's not say anything so we don't get hit on a second news cycle. So there's always that whole, well, maybe we should do nothing because we already got hit with it, and if we say anything more, we're going to get that additional bump. So that's a huge conversation with any kind of court crisis I've personally been involved with. And, and so it's a tough thing to go ahead and, and figure out where that, where that threshold is. Um, on the other side of it is legal, which doesn't always want to admit any kind of responsibility. <laughs> and so, you know, yeah, addressing things. I, I, I like the example you talked about, which is, you know, you could go very direct to where the, the nucleus the of the source is and say, hey, all right, we get it that this probably wasn't a really great thing. We're kind of, you know, we're using the, it, there's a lot of things of bumbling dads everywhere. I'm a dad blogger too, and I see it all the time. <laughs> and, uh, it's not the only company, which is also the good part of it too. But, you know, you could have a dialogue to say, all right, we kind of get the bad of it. How do we go ahead and fix this? And how do we really kind of build a relationship with, with the other side of parenting, if you will, to go ahead and say, what can we do there? And, and so, you know, as long as the audience is receptive, you could have a dialogue there that then isn't necessarily you necessarily admitting responsibility, but going ahead and, and working with those bloggers so where they're kind of saying, hey, I met with, you know, so-and-so, and this is really great, and here's the action that they're taking. And by the way, that's a, you guys have all mentioned this in one form or another, but the idea of reaching out to, um, to some of the influencers and saying, hey, we have an issue, what's your opinion? Can you yeah. help us out? You've all mentioned that in one capacity or another. It's a great idea. 
I want to try something that may fail, but let's give this a try because you guys are so quiet in this audience tonight. Um, let's do a little like the speed dating version of, uh, of um, PR advice. Do any of you have issues going on and you want just a little, you know, how should we even approach this? Yes. So now stand up when you ask the question if you could. Says the photographer. Says the photographer. <laughs> says the visual. Gives you all your picture taken. <laughs> issue we run into a lot um, with where we kind of intersect. Tell us, tell us where you, who you are. Oh, uh, I'm Christine. I work for a marketing and public relations agency in LA. Um, we opened the office on the West Coast about two years ago, and I manage it. Great. Um, one of our clients has a big issue in that we'll have a news, uh, we'll have a story break about a product that isn't positive. And it will either be posted on YouTube or we'll get an article that's well optimized and it lands on the first page of Google. So what do you guys do or what are some of the things that you can do to prepare for before that happens to help out optimize it or help push it off the page or help manage the expectations around what you do? Because after that news cycle, it's just there and it doesn't go away. That's a great Great point. Yeah, it's a really important point. Maybe you want to take that. I can take that. Let me start. Go ahead. I, I just um, that's a that's a huge that's a huge part of it. Um, what we've done for some of our clients, obviously, what what generates all that Google juice is all the links to the original story, and that's what pushes it up in search results. So there's a couple things that you can do to mitigate that. First of all, making sure that you have some kind of strategy to either make a statement available on your website that you can not game the system, but make sure has a lot of active keywords around that topic. Um, doing a keyword buy, obviously it's paid media, but that does help a little bit, and it does help It does help a little bit of the organic juice, I've noticed. Not a lot, but sometimes it's enough to push it up a little bit, um, and sometimes you do have to let the news cycle die a little bit. Um, and the other thing that we do sometimes is, and I'm, I'm far from a media relations expert, again, no PR experience whatsoever, <laughs> but we work with our media relations team um, and work with some of those advocates, some of those friends that we've made before we need them um, to, try to, to try to focus on the other side of the story. You know, we give them we give them the statement, then we write, let them write we let them write what they want to. But um, try to try to get the balanced version of the story out there. Um, and and there's really no trick to getting that to go viral. But everybody wants to know what the company's side of the story is, right? Everybody's calling them for comment, so you want to present that in the best light possible. I think so. Those are some of the things that help. We also, I mean, from a social media perspective, we want to contact some of our, you know, not the journalistic but the blogger type advocates. We'll also look at um, some of our social media channels will look at ways to um, either post statements or make sure that the information is available there. Um, make sure that the dark site, most of our clients have dark sites or dark information pages so we can just populate them with statements and get them up really quickly. Um, so those are some of the things that we can do to combat that. It has to happen very, very quickly after a, after a crisis break. So having a plan at the ready, having dark pages at the ready, having dark statements at the ready, you know, something, you know, if something like this issue does break, here's what we, here are the four things we have to do immediately, and here's what we, and here are the things that we need to do in the first two hours to make sure that we mitigate that is super, super important. Yeah, the, the problem too in this space, um, and to not necessarily disagree, I mean, a lot of the strategies that you know, like dark sites, like creating a lot of multi-linking and stuff like that. Unfortunately, Google changed a lot of the uh, advantages with kind of approaching that way. 
Um, so it's 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 interesting. It's it, it's a harder problem to solve than it was like yeah, probably a year definitely. ago, um, which is too bad. Uh, the bigger piece of it, and, and I really love one of the examples that you really brought up, which is, you know, it is a bit. So if you're trying to bump something like a major media publication out of out of the Google juice, um, that's really hard. And so the best way to do that because you're not getting well. So you're right. And so what your your biggest win possibly. Um, is really, um, like she said, is, is working with other big kind of news outlets and saying, you know, hey, we just want to kind of tell a different kind of side of the story. You're not necessarily presenting it that way, You're, unless you really have to because it is a, a response needed. But you are trying to go ahead and get other major media sources to cover the story the way you want to. So media relations can, becomes an extremely important part of the conversation yeah. um, because that's going to affect what also shows up in those results um, more have, so than anything else. And if you have good relationships with some media, usually they'll be the first ones to call you and they'll go, WTF. Yeah. <laughs> Do you exactly. have a comment on this? Because we'd really like to hear what you have to say because we've had a relationship for five or ten years. Well, and you could also get an update or maybe another story from that same publication too. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, you know not always the easiest thing to do. I get it. But a question? Can I ask a question? So the stories that are appearing in Google Search are they stories by major top tier news organizations? Yeah, I mean, we've seen it both ways depending on the client, but you can have a YouTube video like you were speaking to with Kryptonite Locks or a major news publication. They all show up, you know, there's a mixture of both. So just a little technical information. We, we have a class on SEO as well, but uh, what she's saying about the inbound links is that's really how they're figuring out what to put at the top. So what you want to do is you want to actually look at those inbound links and see how influential they are and then what you want to do is you want to lure inbound links from more influential sites. A little tip, inbound links from .edu's are more powerful than inbound links from .coms. Inbound links from .gov's are more powerful than inbound links from .edu's. Inbound links from .mil's are more powerful than inbound links from .gov's. So a link baiting strategy would be if it's a, is it health or health related? Uh, CPG. Okay. If there was some sort of scholarship program with a university and you could build an area of the site and start to get links in from that, that could be very effective. Um, in my PR days, I worked on a news break where this guy who's a major CEO, Silicon Valley guy, you would search his name and there was just scathing story in Business Week about how he rigged the books at his old company before he sold it. And he had this new break, and he wanted to trump it. So we came out with the new break, and it was the biggest news break I ever had. I mean, we got everything above the fold on the same day. And it was gone. The link was gone. We were high-fiving. We were like, yeah, woo. Six months later, Business Week stories back at the top. And he was a pretty technically proficient guy, more than me. And he, at the time, figured out that there was an inbound link from a syllabus page at stanford.eu at the business school. And where was Google hatched? Stanford.edu. So that one inbound link was killing New York Times, CNN, everything, the biggest media outlets. So he actually took his, the result of his case because he sued Business Week, won the suit, but they ran, they, they didn't care because they sold more magazines than it did to pay the suit. And, but he showed what happened to the professor and the professor removed the link and sure enough, that story was gone forever. 
So it really is about that leverage. And if you can sort of figure out what it is that's propping the other guy up above you and get a better inbound length, that's the way to compete. He's still going to be there, but you'll be there with him. Yeah. By the way, one other thing besides inbound lengths that can be manipulated to some extent or can be promoted is engagement. And I've always found it really interesting that and, and appropriate in some funny way that Google likes engagement. It's like, oh, people are actually engaging with this uh, content. And it doesn't matter whether it's positive or negative, which if you think about it, if you put up a political debate, like a political speech, you're going to have some people liking and some people disliking because they're engaged in it. But what happens is people will put up something inflammatory and people will dislike it because they're angry that they got sucked into watching it or, or engaging with it. But every time somebody hits dislike, they're increasing the, um, the they're optimizing that because Google's algorithm sees it as engagement. But engagement is one thing that we can all work with. One thing to add to that, I mean, we were talking a little earlier about United Airlines. Yes, exactly. We're talking about Google likes its own. Google also likes video because it's very engaging. There are several engagement metrics that come along with a video that's not just a like or a share. It's how long you watch the video, do you share it with others, do you bookmark it, et cetera. Um, United, I guess this was like four years ago, about four years ago. Um, This uh, singer from, I believe it was Tennessee, um, traveled on a United Airlines flight and the baggage handlers broke his precious guitar. Um, and United was kind of, well, it's not our problem. You know how airlines can sometimes be. Um, so this guy went home and wrote a song called United Breaks Guitars. <laughs> and he was a pretty good songwriter and he had a really good voice. And the thing took off. It went viral, quote, unquote, as we say in the biz. And for 18 months, it sat at the top of the Google search results. United Breaks Guitars, and United did absolutely nothing about it. And so when you went, anybody who went to see what United was doing, you know, I need to catch a flight, I need to catch a United flight, that was the first thing they saw. Because what do most people do when they go online to do something? Google.com, right? So that was the first thing people saw. So if you typed in United Airlines, you would find this song. It was, the, the video was right up there at the top of the search results. Now, if you were on the fence about what airline to use on your family vacation, would you think twice about flying United Airlines? Only if I, I play sure guitar. Would. Yeah. Only if I play guitar. But there's, all, but there's been a couple like other cases like that. So, so video is often video is something else to think about. If it's something that if it's something you can respond to that you could use video, just because I've seen video results go much higher in the search results. Again, Google likes to eat its own. So, okay, we have five minutes left. Let's go. You, you in the back, and then. Kristen, and I work for Walt Disney Parks and Resorts. I'm wondering what process you have in place for determining when to post versus when not to post. For example, we do, um, we occasionally increase our prices to come to our theme parks. Is that something that you proactively post or that you don't, fully knowing that word is going to get around, people are going to you know, be upset by it? It depends on the situation. It depends on the, uh, on the, on the issue or the crisis. People ask me all the time, well, when do we post? Like, how many posts do there have to be on our Facebook page for us to respond? Well, it's different for every crisis. And also, thou shalt not make mountains out of molehills. So always think about the audience. Does your audience really care about this? Are they going to get that news somewhere else? And do we want to make a mountain out of a molehill? Um, and it's really important because some people see a co- treat all comments on social media as equal. They're not. It's just like some people look at a blog post. Oh, God, somebody was negative about our product. 
This person is writing to two or three of their best friends and family. That's not very influential, folks. So you have to consider the source and consider the medium before you start to post. I do not have a magic wand. I don't think any of us do for when to post or what that threshold is. I think it's a matter of creating a response and decision tree and figuring out for yourself sort of what is our threshold and what's our threshold for these particular issues and crises and then what do we just stay away from. Um, you know, I work with a lot of food clients, and for some of our, for a couple of our food clients, some of them are as close as you can get to pharma without being completely regulated. So we're really uh, hands off about some of the things that we can say. But for other clients, like some of our gaming clients or whatever, there's a lot that we can say. So it really does depend on the client. It depends on the issue. You know, for our gaming clients, you know, uh, Steam is down or servers are down somewhere. Yeah, you want to you want to talk about that. You want to get information about that out as quickly as possible because the more people hitting the servers, the longer it takes to get them back up. Um, so it's different, I think, in every every crisis. And so going through that threshold process with your team is really super important. My my, my uh, thought on that is. If, if it's indicative of a systemic failure with your product, then it's probably deserving of response. But if it's somebody who's upset with your marketing or upset with something you said on social media because it's politically charged, I mean, I, I, we see all these, you know, mashable supposed social media crises, which really don't register with anyone but us. It's just the bubble that notices it. Um, remember Motrin Moms? Oh my God, Motrin Moms, Motrin Moms. Didn't do anything to sales of Motrin. I mean, if you look at the impact on the stock price or sales, zero. So I think you have to look at, is it really indicative of a product failure or is it just someone unhappy with how you're promoting yourself or what you have to say? And on your specific question, I mean, if Disney is going to raise their prices, I think we all, I mean... You know, would kill to get a free park hopper pass, but we kind of anticipate that it's going to cost a god awful amount of money, and that the prices are just going to keep going up. I'm not sure what you get by announcing it unless you have something else to announce. That's my take. Yes, the happiest place on earth. You got to announce it. You should pay for that, right? <laughs> um, we have two minutes left. Does anybody have a quick no gentleman problem. over here had a question? You, uh, you're good. Yeah. Anybody else a quick question? You, in the third to the last row. No, that's you. That's Lauren. Me. Yeah. All right. So, earlier you mentioned about training your clients on how to use social media, but when it's your client, especially personal PR, when you're representing like one entity, and they're a larger influencer, say, for instance, my background is uh, sports PR, and the athlete itself would have a Twitter and a Facebook, and they would you know have hundreds of thousands of followers versus the team, which would have like ten to twenty thousand, and they would go do their own thing. How much like do you think you should influence that? Or if, I mean, at the end of the day, if they're the ones paying you, do you not comment on it? And at the same time, for instance, somebody I represented married someone who they got a lot of bad publicity about, and you know we didn't comment on it at all. But she would, you know, reply back, like, from a personal account to, you know, the haters, as it were. What is your stance? And, you know, especially when you're a firm, but you're representing someone, you know, who is technically your boss and, you know, the actual face behind the brand. Is it haters with an S or a Z? It matters. I think in this case, you're talking about uh, sort of executive level training. 
<coughs> so if you're training a board of directors or a celebrity or a C-suite, you know, you're not going to do it online. They're going to want to sit down with you and you're going to have to point out what you think is important to them. You're probably going to do most of the work, but if they're going to dip in and off of Twitter once in a while, there are probably a few things you should teach them. And I don't think that happens online. That probably happens, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. Um, you know, I think what can happen online is social media policy training for the enterprise. I think introduction to social media training can happen on an enterprise scale online. I also think like if you're teaching practitioners to roll up their sleeves and use social media, that's probably going to be an in-person classroom type experience as well. But so. I get where you're coming from. You're dealing with someone who thinks they know everything about social media because they probably already have a big following. Yeah, and they, they tweet themselves and it's not like we're directing them to You're just co-managing. But there's like, the, oh, hey, we're the actual, you know, that's the athlete. We're the brand, but, you know, the team behind them. And oh, right. We're, us, you're doing it strategically, but they're doing it because exactly. of them. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I don't really have a, a strong answer for you. I think that um, it, it's a little bit of co-management and you need you just have to know the client that you're dealing with. If they're heavy-handed and they want to have a partner, then you step back and you say, I'm not, this isn't me then, this is you, you've made those decisions, I'll be responsible for the post I do and that my team have come up with. Um, and then that person's responsible for the post they've come up with and the results that happen because of their actions. Yeah, and this is a, you know, this is a space where, this is where a personal brand is a big brand. Yeah. And so, you honestly, I think, the best advice probably is yeah, what I'm going to say, right? What a self-serving beginning comment, right? Um, no, the, the, the reality is that I, I think you would just approach it like you would with any brand situation and, or crisis situation or situation analysis. And so don't worry that it's an individual. That individual has so much clout as, as their own kind of personal brand and just say, well, what would we do in this kind of situation? Let's have a serious meeting about this because this is becoming a situation where there's a lot of back and forth going on, whether it's, I don't know, ex-wives or, or girlfriends or whatever the heck's going on with what you're talking about. But <laughs> or your Vogue cover is like big news or whatever it might be, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's just, a, it's just a dialogue of saying, you know, all right, here's what's going on. Here's the situation. Here's the volume of conversation going on. Here's a couple alternatives of how we can handle response. And so you're really presenting multitudes of you know how you're going to handle the situation and you really just want to do some situation play out mm -hmm. everything's really a kind of a situation play out to say what would this really kind of look like and i think if you just treat it like you would like in a brand or a product kind of situation then it becomes less kind of oh this is just an individual person kind of by themselves and because they really are a, a significant brand at that point i am so glad i don't work with celebrities yeah, yeah. Me too, right? <laughs> you know, god bless you <laughs> You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit 
www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.